0: From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abi, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's clinical and translational science center. We all know the importance of making healthy eating choices. Well-balanced and nutritional diets are fundamental keys to prevention of chronic disease. However, when cultural norms and major corporations influence how we eat, there's no easy answer to a healthy lifestyle. At Massachusetts General Hospital, Dr. Anne Thorndike wanted cafeteria goers to make healthy choices and stick to them. With strategic labeling and shelf organization, her team found real improvement. Anne Thorndike is an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and a general internist at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. Her clinical and research interests are in the prevention and treatment of obesity through lifestyle modification.
1: Dr. Thorndyke, thank you for being here.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: So you helped start a program at Mass General called Choose Well, Eat Well, and in their cafeteria to help people choose healthy foods. Can you tell us what was the inspiration behind that program?
2: Sure. Um, So I first started working with um, human resources on um, the BeFit program, which is our employee wellness program. Um, It was a 10, 10, it is a 10 week program program. that helps employees make nutrition and exercise um, changes, and so when I uh, came on board, I uh, was my role was to help with the evaluation of the program. So what we we started looking at the results, and we found that employees are p- participating in the program, which was 10 weeks, um, lost weight. We saw improvements in blood pressure, cholesterol, um, and um, blood sugar. But um, when we followed up at one year, although we still saw some improvements, a lot of the, change, the positive changes had gone away. So it got me thinking a lot about what could we be doing in our worksite environment to help sustain healthy changes and um, help our employees be healthy all year round, all the time, even when they're not participating in a program. So there had been a lot of discussion about doing something in the cafeteria around traffic light labeling. Um, And so in discussions with um, uh, uh, a colleague from the nutrition department and with the head of human resources at um, uh, MGH, um, we started talking about actually doing this program. However, at the time, we didn't really have any funding to do it. So another colleague of, of mine Um, helped me to put together a uh, catalyst grant, um, which also required that um, we reach outside of our usual um, collaborators. And um, I contacted somebody over at Harvard Business School, and we put together a project to not only to implement the cafeteria program, but to look at um, the results and look at how, um, how it did over time. Um, so really getting that first um, grant from Harvard Catalyst is what triggered us to actually implement it in the cafeteria, and then um, it's it's led to a whole lot of research following.
1: Could you explain just what traffic light labeling is?
2: Sure. So um, the traffic light labeling is just a, a way, uh, it's a way we categorize foods into healthy, less healthy, and unhealthy. Um, the The... The reason we use the traffic light labeling is because it's a very, um, well, we hypothesize that it would be a very effective way of um, letting employees know or even or cafeteria visitors know quickly what's a good choice and what's not such a great choice when you're um, in the cafeteria. Um, the green labels um, represent foods um, that have um, at least... Uh, one or two um, healthy qualities and this is based on USDA guidelines. So for example, it would be have a main component as being a fresh fruit and vegetable or um, a whole grain or a lean protein. And then the red choices are um, have, no healthy attributes, and they're um, generally high in calories and saturated fat. Um, So it's a system that um, we developed an algorithm for, and we really stuck by it. And I actually think that's the important point. So you always know why a food got rated a certain level. People may disagree about what gets labeled yellow sometimes versus red. um, But um, it's a consistent system um, that... um, we can always back up when people ask us about it. So what we could do, what we then did, is a couple of nutritionists at MGH helped develop the system. Um, attached a red, yellow, or green label to each food or beverage item, just in um, in a in a database. And so what that allowed us to do is to. Um, Conduct a baseline period where we could look at how people are choosing food before we even put labels on f- foods. We could tra- we tracked foods by using the cafeteria sales data, and one um, uh, benefit of um, the MGH cafeteria is that some employees can pay for their cafeteria purchases with, at the time, what was called a platinum plate card. Now people use their ID card, but it links their purchases to the individual person. So we can see what happens over time. So this is all done anonymously. We're not looking at what each person and what they're purchasing. We just assign them a study identification number, and then we um, look at that Um, identification number and how it's associated with purchases over time so we can look at changes so what we did is we did three months where we just looked at how people were purchasing with no changes and then we added the traffic light labels in the cafeteria and that was um the labeling was on either on the package if it was a prepackaged item or it would be on shelf labels for beverages um or um, on the menu boards. And we labeled everything, including condiments, all the items on the salad bar, um, every um, foods that were prepared on site versus prepackaged. Although we were doing this as a study, this program was implemented as a permanent uh, change to the cafeteria. So part of the money that we Um, got for the grant went into helping to contribute to making signs and really uh, making this look official in the cafeteria. Um, But then the idea is that once it's in, it's in, and we're not going to backtrack. We don't have a, quote unquote, what we call a washout period where we take the changes away. So we had this baseline period, and then we did the traffic light labels only for three months. And then we added this next um, intervention on what is what we call choice architecture. And choice architecture um, is um, derived from behavioral economics. And it's basically a product placement intervention where we put the healthy items at eye level or where they're easy to reach. And we put some of the unhealthy items out of reach or a little bit harder to find. And so the, it was a sequential analysis where we had baseline data, then we had traffic light labels only, and then we had traffic light labels plus the choice architecture where we making green items a little bit easier to see and find and red items a little bit harder um, and more difficult to find.
1: What does that look like just practically putting items, putting green items in a place that would be easier to find?
2: So, um a really good example was the beverages. And actually, this is where we saw the most success. So in the cafeteria, before we made any changes, um, there, were, there were about six or seven different beverage refrigerators, just some bigger than others, some smaller. Um, but water, for some reason, was only in two very small refrigerators off to the side. The, in the big refrigerators, there were soda, juice, milk, flavored milk, those types of things. And so when we made um, the choice architecture changes, we uh, made sure that water was in every refrigerator. And then we also added these baskets of bottled water at each food station. So the concept would be that somebody would be waiting in line for their food and see the basket of water and just pick up the water instead of going to the refrigerator and seeing a lot of soda and juice and those types of things. They, they've already got their beverage. There's no reason to go to the refrigerator. In the refrigerators, though, we did make sure that at eye level for most adults, so anywhere around 5 feet and above, we only had healthy beverages, what we were calling healthy beverages. So that included water um, and seltzer, low-fat milk. Um, and then we were also included all zero, any zero-calorie beverage. So we included diet beverages as um, a healthier choice, although that can be debated. Um, and so that was all implemented after the labeling. So people are already kind of tuned in to the red, yellow, and green labeling. And then we just switched things around and we didn't tell them we were going to switch things around. And what we saw is that, um, for particularly for water, there was a huge bump up in choice of water as a proportion of all beverages purchased. So that it wasn't just that people were buying water and soda, they were buying water instead of soda or water instead of some other um, sugary beverage. Um, and so... That that's, it's a pretty simple intervention, but it was highly effective. Just because it was, it was really playing into the way people operate when they're in a rush and when they're not thinking and they just want to um, uh, get out of the cafeteria quickly.
1: So the choose well, eat well program is still going on in Mass General mm-hmm. at the cafeteria, and you've also done this in corner stores um, in Chelsea. Could you talk about that? Um, what you've been doing there and why it's difficult for people to make healthy food choices in certain areas?
2: Sure. Um, so we've done a couple of um, pilot studies in Chelsea. Um, Chelsea is a, um, a, a city that's um, just uh, north of Boston that has a very a uh, low-income um, Hispanic population, um, and so we have a um, health center located there. We've um, the hospitals um, does a lot of work in the community there. Um, so I get connected with people who are interested in promoting healthy food choices, um, and um, we uh, decided to um, test a, a project. Um, where we would use choice architecture in some of the corner stores um, in Chelsea. So um, corner stores are an interesting um, place um, uh, because a lot of um, urban um, populations do, uh, they're not just buying tobacco and soda there, that there's a lot of times they're buying some of their groceries there. And corner stores accept, um, both, um, or many of the corner stores accept both, um, WIC, um, and SNAP. So they're, the SNAP is the food stamps and WIC, um, are the, uh, women, infant, and children's, um, food vouchers. And so, um, because they can use those, um, uh, government food assistance there, the, these corner stores are required to stock a certain amount of groceries. So, um, although there's large grocery stores in Chelsea, there's one particularly large grocery store, we still find that a lot of people do their shopping at these convenient corner stores. So the idea behind the Corner Store Project was to take some of these concepts that we'd learned or some of these learnings from our work in the hospital setting and see if they could apply in the um, uh, urban low-income urban setting. Um, So I would say that if you were comparing employees at Mass General or people who come to MGH with um, a community setting as far as food choices, I'd say, well, at a very basic level, we all struggle with the same issues in making food choices. But if you go into a low-income community, you're going to compound the issue with people who are struggling um, to put any food on the table, um, people who have trouble paying for their food um, or are using um, food stamps um, or they um, have um, other issues so that their, the quality of their food is not their um, priority. The other um the other thing that you run into in a community like Chelsea is there's a lot of cultural preferences, um, that, um, um, sometimes, uh, uh, get in the way with, um, making healthier choices. Um, so, um, this particular corner store project couldn't address all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, basically we, we tried to ad- address the, um, a uh, tendency that people walk into the corner store and they're going to buy what they see first or what's most prominent. So what we did is we did a choice architecture intervention and a little bit of education for the store owners with around fruits and fresh fruits and f- vegetables. Through the the study, we provided um, we, we basically enrolled 6 corner stores and we randomized them. They had to agree to be randomized to either the intervention or a control group. The intervention was um, going to be um, where we uh, provided them with some resources to stock fruits and veg, fresh fruits and vegetables at the front of their store. So we weren't going to pay for the fruits and vegetables. We weren't going to tell them what to buy, but we might buy them some shelving or some baskets or um, some uh, to help them display the fruits and vegetables more prominently. And we also brought in a consultant. Um, who is um, uh, basically uh, somebody who runs one of the produce departments in one of the high-end Boston grocery stores, to come in and really talk to them about how to make your produce last the longest, like what should be stocked next to each other. I didn't know this, but apparently it's two things Um, Two different products um, that give off different gases can cause one to get rot faster than um, the other. Um, And so some things need to be refrigerated, some things don't. Um, And so there was a little uh, education around those issues. We targeted stores that accept WIC and SNAP um, because our goal was to use as an outcome the use of the WIC fruit and vegetable voucher. So WIC provides each family with a uh, voucher that is specific, specifically has to be used on fruit and vegetables. So this allows us to track. um, The state gave us the data um, for each store to track how many fruit and vegetable vouchers were used at each store. And we can't link it to individuals. We can just look at it overall. Um, And what we found is in the intervention stores where we put the fruits and vegetables at the front of the store and made them look nice, where people saw them, um, that the sales, uh, uh, the use of the WIC fruit and vegetable vouchers went up in those stores, and in the control stores, they didn't change at all. And then when we interviewed people walking out of the stores, people who used food stamps or WIC were more likely to say that, uh, that they did purchase fruits and vegetables compared to the control stores.
1: And so in the control group, you didn't have any, there was no intervention, basically. None. It was just. No to see this is what people normally do. And then with improving the displays and making it more prominent then you had, you saw that people were actually buying more fruits and vegetables.
2: Yes. Mm -hmm. And one of the really nice outcomes of that work was that, um, you know, so these are real stores. These are people's livelihood. There's, you know, they're, they, um, so, you know, we had initially some skepticism of these stores and we did pay each store whether they were in the control or the intervention group they each got about $500 every 3 months during the study as long as they kept stayed in the study um, and that was just to buffer in case they had any loss of profits we didn't want that to be a concern for them and so in so in, in one store in particular that was one of our intervention stores the um the we were the person we were working with was the store manager and he was very skeptical about doing this. We were like we had him move his frito lay display that was right at the front of the store off to the side and, you know, put fruits and vegetables there instead and then you know, put a few fruits and vegetables in his beverage refrigerator at the front of the store. And at the end of this whole project he was a complete convert. He loved the way the store looked. It looked really nice. It looked people were really happy with it. They were buying more fruits and vegetables. So that was a really nice outcome because it worked, you know, it wasn't just us barreling in there and and telling them that this is a good thing to do. He actually in the end really believed that it was a good thing to do.
0: Hi Think Research listeners. We're taking this break to let you know that Harvard Catalyst offers online courses and topics including grant writing, mixed methods research, and omics. Right now, we are accepting applications for our Foundations of Clinical Research course, Factor. To apply and learn more about all the courses we offer, please visit catalyst.harvard.edu slash education.
1: So this is kind of a bigger question, and I don't know if there's an answer to it, but Um, whose responsibility is it to encourage people to make healthy food choices?
2: So um, that is a bigger question. I think that uh, the responsibility is really broad. I mean, this is kind of gets to the question, whose responsibility is it to promote any healthy choices? Um, And, you know, a lot of times we kind of, we believe that it's a personal responsibility to be healthy. That, you know, if you don't exercise and eat right, it's your fault, and, you know, that's on you. And I think that it's a much more complicated issue, and it does, it is going to require huge cultural shifts in how we do a lot of things. So I think it's a responsibility of everybody. I think it's, I think the food industry has a major role to play here. Um, and in formulation of products, in developing new healthier products, and the way menus are labeled, the way supermarkets are structured, um, I think that the government should play a role. Now, not everybody would agree with me on that, but I do think in you know our the the SNAP program provides millions of dollars to the grocery industry. That um, I person you know a lot of work that I've um, been doing has been thinking about how do you promote healthier choices for people who are on the SNAP program. Um, but you know, the question is, should the SNAP program be paying for sugar-sweetened beverages and candy? Um, it's supposed to provide people with um, good nutrition, but there's a lot of controversy about that, about the fairness of telling people what they can and cannot buy. Um, but I do think the government has a role to play. In the WIC program, which the government also supports, there are restrictions on what people can buy. They can, And this is for um, pregnant women and um, children under the age of five. And um, the they do um, specify certain products. You can only buy low-fat milk. You can um, only buy uh, products that were made with whole grains. You can buy fruits and vegetables. So they do make restrictions there. So it um sometimes the argument for not doing anything in SNAp doesn't make sense. So I think it's you know, the industry, the government, I think in medicine, we have a responsibility. Part of what drove me to doing this kind of work was the some of the frustration of being one on one with people and counseling and knowing that what I'm doing is just a very small fraction of their life. They, pre- all of our our health is determined by, I would say 99% of our health is determined by factors outside of the, the medical care. And so that's why I got interested in doing this kind of work. But that doesn't mean we should give up in, in our medical care. We should, I think, we need better education around for physicians around providing um, nutrition advice um, for understanding what um, a healthy diet is um, and how you work with people to change their behavior, which is not such, that's not just saying you need to eat fruits and vegetables. There's a lot more behind that. And so I don't think we get trained very well in behavior change. And I think that could be a major part of it. Um, and so, uh, so I think that the the responsibility, it can't just be on one particular area. It's not gonna work that way. Reversing the obesity epidemic is gonna be a huge um job that's going to, it's going to take years. And, you know, uh, my, my other feeling is that we just, we can't just address obesity prevention with kids. Like if we just focus on kids and we forget about the parents, then, then we're going to go nowhere because the kids go home and they're with their parents. So they, you know, that this is a really a, um, a a, full, we need to address obesity prevention at all generation level and not just um, just focus in one place. So it's a, it's a huge task. But there's a lot of really smart people working on this. So I believe that we'll make progress. <laughs>
1: um, what would you like to see in the future? You sort of touched on it with your previous answer. But to get people to make healthier food choices, what would you like to see happen in grocery stores or um, in sort of just the thinking around food choices? What would you like to see people do more of or less of?
2: Okay, let's start with grocery stores. So I think that part of what gets into grocery stores is going to be the responsibility of the food industry. But I think that the grocery store is kind of the the gateway to the consumer. And so I, I actually, I mean, I think the, some of the work that I've done um, suggests that there are, some very simple things you can do in the way you set up your store that would promote healthier choices. Mm -hmm. So, of course, you run into the issue of this, you know, so this, I would say, around the choice architecture. And one of the things that um, I have um, been interested in promoting with grocery stores is getting rid of soda, and unhealthy items on the end caps at the front of the store when you walk in. Um, I think that there is no question that those types of product placement increase people's mindless purchases of unhealthy items. So undoing that is is a little bit more complicated than just stores saying, oh, sure, we'll do that. Um, That they they get paid by the providers of the um, products to place things at certain levels. So they depend on some of that income. Um, and I think that they believe that this is how they're gonna sell more products. I I've, personally i am not c- um, convinced that we couldn't reverse this by putting healthier products out and having people buy those things. I, I think in my core, I believe that most people want to be healthy. Um, and so that we need to make it easier for them to be healthy. Um, And some of this, it's not just about nudging people. Some of it is going to require better education. So I really like the idea of labeling systems. I mean, a lot of the grocery stores are starting to use them. There's a Guiding Stars program, which puts one, two, or three stars on healthy more healthy and healthiest items and I think that it's a great program I think that that's the type of thing it it get it's it's somewhat like the red yellow and green the 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 one thing that is different and this is where I think grocery stores may not ever get but the red labels are particularly effective at saying this is an unhealthy product most stores use a well this is a healthy choice but they don't say this is an unhealthy choice about things that actually is the most effective way, but I'm not sure that, that that's the acceptable in um, industry. Mm-hmm. Um, but doing some labeling um, that can help the consumer as they're going through understand, you know, especially like say you go to breakfast cereals, that's a confusing area for people. And you know something you think is healthy may not be that healthy. And so if you have something like the guiding stars that lets you know what's a healthy choice.
1: If we know that getting that incentivizing people to make healthy choices gets them to make healthy choices and we know what the unhealthy choices are, why have why haven't we been able to implement that program like ha- has there been um, a push to get snap to not cover uh, sweets and soda have is there you know have people been trying to do that? yes
2: Yes, there's the it's it's politics and it's money, um, and um, yeah, there's a lot of um, a, a lot of people who believe that the SNAP program should not cover sugar sweetened beverages. There's been a lot of discussion, but there's a lot of pushback on it from groups that you might not expect. So a lot of the hunger groups push back on that because again, they don't think that it's fair that we should be telling poor people what to eat and so there um and then of course you have like the the soda industry lobbying government and i mean this is a government a federal government program so there's a lot of factors that go that go into it um so you know when i recently co-authored a paper um, suggesting that we that choice architecture be used uh, in the SNAP program that stores um, that we require stores if they're going to participate in the SNAP program not be allowed to put sugar sweetened beverages um, on the end cap aisles or at checkout or in the front of the store. Um, that would be sort of a compromise because it's not telling people they can't buy it; it's just putting it out of the way so they don't see it first thing when they walk in the store, and that they might buy the healthier items with their SNAP um, dollars. The common thread of what I do is prevention. So tobacco, I consider tobacco work prevention work. Mm -hmm. And so I did that for 10 years. uh, And, you know, I decided that... um, you know, if I was going to continue my research career, I needed to be doing what I really loved and what I was really passionate about, which is about healthy lifestyle. Um, So that's why I kind of switched over to, and so it's about obesity prevention, but you know, I don't want, I don't want people to get stuck on the fact that healthy food choices is just about obesity. It's, Mm -hmm. it's not, it's about, it's about everything. It's about diabetes, cardiovascular disease. you know, uh, cancers, it, all chronic diseases are related to that. And so Alzheimer's disease. Um, so, uh, I do believe in healthy food choices for overall better health. Uh, but I think I, I, guess I got sort of into it through, um, trying to prevent obesity because I think that that's such a complex, difficult problem that, um, needs, so many people working on this at so many different levels.
1: Um, Well, thank you, Dr. Thorndike, for coming in and talking with us.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Next time on Think Research. When I went to medical school, I graduated
1: 10 years ago. I didn't even see one transgender patient, not throughout my uh, medical training, and not not even my, my medical school studies, and not even through my plastic surgery training and now you see that on a daily basis in all aspects of uh, healthcare as it's supposed to be because if we're talking about 1.6% of the population, they are there um, and they were hiding and they were describing that they didn't get the right treatment, but now we are trying to do it right.
0: Dr. Oren Ganor of Boston Children's Hospital talks about the importance of providing transgender health resources and the many associated considerations. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu thinkresearch.